This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. So I would uh, like to begin by uh, welcoming uh, all of our visitors. We have uh, a number of people who are zooming in for this talk. So welcome to everyone. Um, and it is my uh, great pleasure uh, to introduce uh, Reverend Zenju Earthlin Manuel. Um, and this could be a long introduction, but I'm, I'm going to try to just focus on a few uh, things since I think Zenju is known to almost everybody here. Zenju is connected with our Sangha uh, deeply <laughs> through our founder, Zenke Blanche Hartman, who ordained her as a Zen priest and whose Dharma heir she is. And uh, in 2015, Zenju collected and edited uh, this uh, book of teachings from uh, her teacher, uh, Zenke Hartman, Seeds for a Boundless Life, which is the first uh, encounter I had with her in print. Um, and then she published The Way of Tenderness, um, which uh, is, as we mentioned before, uh, the book that is currently being studied in our Waking Up group. Um, I think uh, she's the author, a, a poet and an author and a teacher, uh, and in the last five years, I think it's published five books. Um, very productive, prolific uh, teacher. And uh, she teaches in many places, in many modalities, and we're very, very fortunate that she could find the time for us. And the serendipity is that uh, this wasn't a plan, but these are the way things like this unfold sometimes that uh, her book is the subject of study in our Sangha at this very moment. So um, I won't say more. I will turn this over uh, to Zenju with our deep gratitude uh, for visiting us today. Good morning, everyone. Yeah, good to see familiar faces here and there all over the country. Um, thank you for inviting me, uh, Mako, Vocal, and Charo. Thank you. Um, I write so many books because I don't like to talk. <laughs> and I keep hoping the more books I write, the less you'll keep calling me to talk. <laughs> Just read, read the book. <laughs> But it's not working, it's working the opposite way. So that's okay. <laughs> Here I am. Okay. Um, today, the topic is the, the deepest peace um, in the midst of chaos. And um, I did find it interesting to be writing a book about peace as seemingly everything just took off in the country, you know like really to the nth degree of suffering and um, chaos and <laughs> craziness. Um, I think that I would like to do a bit of talk and then, you know, I really wanna engage. I'd like people to ask questions and to join me in this conversation. And uh, so you don't have to have a question, you can just wanna be part of the conversation as well. Um, so I'm going to be really trying to watch the time to give time for that to happen. Um, you know, this morning I was watching the neighbor 
um, feed these huge cranes that are in our meadow. You know, so he's throwing out corn and they're running. You know, they're really tall. They're, they feel like they're looking at me in the eye and I'm five feet too. So, you know, it's they're just huge, beautiful birds and they're eating and the sun's out. Uh, it's winter, so there's no leaves on the trees. It's all, um, you know, I like bare trees as much as I like trees with the leaves on them. So it's interesting to see uh, a whole meadow of trees without leaves and these cranes eating and having fun and taking care of themselves in this meadow full of sun. Um, so all of this is going on while um, some people are dying of COVID, you know, at this time. Uh, all of this is going on while uh, I understand there's an upsurge uh, against Asian Americans in Washington state being attacked. This is going on while children are online trying to learn in the midst of their probably chaotic household, you know, little warriors trying to still get their lessons done. And all of this is going on. So uh, where, is, where is the peace in all of that? Where is the peace in all of that? That's a question. So when I wrote The Deepest Peace, I, I tried not to define it. And I think that that effort was difficult, but um, I did it on purpose. And it, there still may be some meaning in there and definition, but that wasn't the purpose. And I wanted to explore peace, not decide what peace is or should be, or even how we should do it. And that it um, is a different kind of peace that I, I wanted to explore, not peacemaking. Um, I see peacemaking often as um, it's a justice movement in itself. And um, that's one thing, but the movement that I, the piece that I'm talking about is not a movement in the sense of gathering people to, you know, work at something, against something, to alleviate something, to uh, change the society. So um, the piece that I um, am talking about, I wanted to read a, a piece from my book, and I think I um, actually as a uh, we were beginning to start, it it kind of disappeared <laughs> off of my screen. So uh, if you'll allow me to find this again um, that I wanted to read. Okay. So um, I, it's, it's this part is I'm walking kind of in out in the forest and I say, um, I begin to walk and I see uh, half eaten birds and the dried bones of an animal unknown to me. It's clear that this perfect and peaceful desert, that peace is not the opposite of violence. Peace is in the violence. It can only be seen by the open eyes of awareness. Peace is itself. The experience of peace, so it's, you know, in that sense, it's not part of violence. The experience of peace I'm discovering in the desert had always been with me. I just hadn't let it in. I made efforts at making peace, 
But making peace requires an idea and then action upon that idea. It's not the same peace I'm speaking of. The peace being expressed in these writings does, don't come from the mind or the lips or gentle action. It doesn't come from legislation made by government or peacemaking movements. It's a peace that appears without effort, like the desert filling up my eyes. It appears like snow, wind or rain. Peace arrives on its own if we don't resist it. And so that's an interesting kind of peace, you know, because you can't grab onto it. You can't decide whether it's happening or not. Is it happening now, right now, right now in this moment or not? And if it's not, what is it that you might find yourself trying to do to make it happen, you know? And then what state of mind are you in when you're trying to make peace or you know, work toward peace, you know. I, I've been doing this exercise and I think this might help you maybe see what is, it is and how you do it because what I'm talking about is a state of mind or a state of consciousness. So when um, you take action against anything or, get, or for something, I won't even say against, for something. When you take action, what state of mind, state of consciousness are you in? So there's this exercise um, that uh, we just do like a minute of it, where I want you to um, be inward right now. Just go in if you're not already there. You know, just whatever it takes for you to go into your inner world and to breathe there and to settle back in that inward gaze. Okay, now slowly open your eyes and look out. It doesn't have to be onto the screen. You can look out into the room you're in. Very slowly though, looking about. Just very slowly looking out, being outward and looking out. And if you're looking at the screen, that's fine too because it's right in front of you. So looking. and seeing what you get caught up into while you're looking out. Notice the body, whether or not it was different from the inward gaze. The looking out gaze, is it different? It, it, do you find yourself um, wanting to go about to get busy, to do things, to move along, you know, take action, you know, and that's okay. I'm just, we're just noting. That's all we're doing is noting. 
and, and using our practice to know and to see. Okay, so that's a practice you can keep doing to see, to notice uh, your different state of mind, in, which is your state of your body, which is the state of your actions. So it'll, be the, it'll, it'll culminate in how you speak, how you take action, really, and it, therefore how you create uh, karma. So um, I, I put this exercise in today so that when we're looking at peace, um, to the piece at least I explored is the one um, of the inward gaze, but it also has outward gaze. So it's not just inward. This is my piece. Okay, I'm going to leave you alone. I'm going to leave the world alone and I'm going to go into my cave and close my eyes and shut it all out. I'm going to shut out everything that's going. But how can we be still have everything going on as it always has in the world, has gone on? There's always been um, this tension between our peace and the chaos. So this in, in the world as human beings, as sentient beings has always gone on. So um, I'm going to pose something and, and say that there is peace um, already right now. There is peace, not just with you, but in the world, there is peace. Uh, it's not of your own making. This piece is not of your own making. Now, why am I saying that? Oh my God. Ending racism is not of your own making. It's not your strategy. How many have a strategy to end everything, end all the suffering? I always ask my students, okay, I am gonna mute myself and you can talk. <laughs> you take over. Uh, and we do, we do have these things, you know, in our minds of how we think it should be. And um, I think that's what we run into as people when we're trying to deal with our individual suffering as well as the collective suffering, which is one and the same, right? We're all suffering. We weren't at the Capitol on, on, on January 6th at the Capitol. We were not there, but we suffered, right? There is still suffering. You don't have to be there. Same with peace. You don't have to be there, but there is peace. There is the inward and the outward gaze and balancing that gaze and being able to have some outward with the same inward gaze, knowing the state of the body is the practice that we're in, in terms of uh, zazen and meditation. That's what meditation practice is. It's, it's like a medicine, zazen is like a medicine we take, it's like an elixir. And with that elixir, we can see all. Uh, we can see the chaos and we can see the peace all at once. It's all seeing. I always say this is more of a, a seeing practice than it is a sitting one, even though we sit and we're very still, but we're really seeing, we're not, we have to sit to see, but it's not really a sitting practice. It's a seeing practice. And I've learned that um, throughout my experience and with the practice. So I heard this, um, uh, if it's not, you know, a, something of our making, I heard this quote in a, a, a film I was watching, a movie, and it said, it is in our hands. They were talking about the world 
and taking care of the world and stopping the suffering and changing the world and transformation. It is in our hands. That was the end of, that's what it said at the end. It is in our hands to change. And we say that a lot. It is in our hands. It's the future. We are the future. We are the ones. We are the chosen one. We, 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 and we. We are the ones to get it done. And, and then when we don't get it done, you know, then maybe we get blamed for not getting it done. You know, we didn't take care of the environment. All these kinds of things happen. And to me, this is the key that I think is troubling and can also trip us up about what that means, you know. And what we think that means is if it's in my hands, then let me get it together and let me change the world. It's in my hands to change racism, my hands to change the environment. And so therefore I'm gonna do this, 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 then you get exhausted, you get hopeless, you get helpless because this little you <laughs> can't get it done. And then you get a collective and that little collective can't get it done. Why does it keep happening? What, what are we dealing with? You know, and that's the question I asked in my practice, what, what is it? Why is there so much oppression? Why is there so much poverty, you know, misogyny, all these different things? What is that? You know, what, what is it that is really happening within the human condition? And just one of the things I came up with is that we, we are trying to manipulate it and we try to shape everything that's happening. And in that we tend to repeat generation after generation, some of the same things that the other generation did, you know, and that's okay. That doesn't mean that what they did is bad. We were trying to choose the things that we thought served the people that we saw change in the world because of that. I think that that's fine. But at the same time, I think it's important for us when they say it's in our hands, that is in our hands in this sense to receive, not in our hands to shape and mold, but it's in our hands to receive, to be able to receive what we need to receive in order for transformation to, to, to begin and to happen and for it to be innovative or creative. And I think a lot of that is happening for some people in the world today that they're, they're receiving they can no longer have a concert if they're a musician. So they have to open their hands and receive. And then it's in their hands, whatever to come. Now you can go, okay, I don't want that. Flip, give me something, <laughs> something else. <laughs> you know, flip. Mm -mm. <laughs> I've done that a lot in my life. <laughs> I don't think I want that. That happens constantly. And so what are you willing to uh, receive? And... Um, can you receive it in that place of this kind of uh, massaging the inner and the outer as opposed to it being a result, you know, trying to have a result. So I'm watching a lot of uh, good intention and good effort uh, going on in the world around all of the things that are happening and, um, you know, a lot of attention to, uh, the anti-blackness movement and you know the killings and and things like that and and i appreciate all of that and then at the same time i am concerned about us as people thinking we we know how to do it 
rather than allowing something to come up from us, from within us to make, uh, make the change. So um, even in my book, The Way of Tenderness, uh, if you, when you read it and if you've read it already, um, I don't really teach uh, oppression one-on-one in that book because there's too many books in, uh, that already have done a good, a good job on that. And there's wonderful teachers that you can bring in to learn about that. And I always tell people, you know, Angela Davis is alive and well and a legend and she, she's accessible. You know, you can call her, bell hooks, you can call her. So then what do I do if I'm a Zen teacher and I'm in Zen and I'm in, and all these things are, are going on. And um, I can tell you that what I do is trust uh, the practice. I trust the medicine to deliver to me what I need to deliver to the world. Thus the books for me. I mean, I also paint and sing and all these other kinds of things, but that's the books for me. That's what came for me to do, you know, into my hands. That's what I receive. I receive words and language um, and hoping that they're transformative words and language. That's why I don't write about oppression or write, this is how you can use the Buddhist teachings, you know, because we also get ourselves, ourselves involved in that. You know, we just need to be loving and kind. Well, what is that? Really? What is that for you, 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 and you? You could say, well, I was being loving and kind, and I don't know why that person's upset. <laughs> I was speaking in a way that was correct to me. I don't know why they think I wasn't. Why do they think I'm this and I'm that? I'm entitled, I'm a racist, I'm why? You know, what is that? That's because we're still in our own minds, I think, of strategizing it all. We're doing as the world, and we're fortunate enough to have a practice that helps us to not only live in the world and hear the worldly events, but to also view and reflect on what's happening to really see the nature of human life to really see the nature of human life and then offer that back for everyone to continue to offer back the story that's going on in the news. They climbed the Capitol wall. They climbed the Capitol wall. Black people would have been killed. Black people would have been killed. All those are great stories and they're true. <laughs> they are so true. They're true to me. But is that transformative? And where is that speaking and acting coming from. Now I could act on that. I could write about that. I could write that, but that wouldn't be what I received. That would be the piece manipulated and shaped. Writing from the piece with my hands out would be what I'm writing. Because what I, and I know it only because sometimes when I write it, I see, oh, that's, that's something different. Even to me, it's my own work, but even to me, that's something new. When I view the violence in the peace of the Capitol, what happened in the Capitol on January 6th, you know, I don't go to that place. We must have compassion for the people, you know, cause that's something we're supposed to do as Buddhists. No, what we are to do is to see and reflect and view the human nature. And what did it say? 
What did it say? What did it say to us on January 6th? What did that chaos say? What did the disruption say? Because we're going to have this constantly. And we know since we've been babies, we've been noticing that, the disruption, right? So, and, and when we, we came into the world, it was here. When we leave, it'll be here. Some kind of disruption, some kind of chaos. What state of mind will you be in? What state of mind can you be in to receive what the chaos is bringing rather than to be in the chaos? I was telling a friend, he was talking to me about, you know, he was, you know, distressed about what went on at the Capitol, you know, and he was white ML. And I said, you know, I don't, um, I don't, we don't need, no one needs, for people to join in the suffering, to suffer along with us. You can walk along, but to suffer and to suddenly become part of the suffering or the oppression is, is not helpful, but to be part of the transformation is. And so, um, you know, it's kind of that situation where you, you put the mask on yourself to take care of the child on the plane or the person next to you, you put the mask on so that's doing your work, you know, learning how to breathe. And then, you know, instead of suffering along, being a sufferer too, even though you may be suffering, is to see what you can see. I was suffering when I saw what happened on January 6th, but I didn't suffer it long because I began to see right away. And how did I see? I saw through my practice. That's what meditation's about. That's where the social action comes in in meditation is what you see through the sitting. That is the action. And then from there, who knows what you might bring to the world? Who knows? All of us are capable and we're all in our little caves figuring it out. We're capable of something even beyond sitting and meditation, beyond that and even that or only that, you know, and all of that. And so um, there's a quote, there's another quote I wanted to let's see if I have that. I think I have a little time to introduce that one. Let's see. I always get nervous when I mess around with the screen, but I think it's, um, it's Rupert Siepert. Everything he says is interesting, but not always resonate with me. But one of the things is uh, being aware of aware, being aware of awareness. And when we're aware of um, awareness, then I think the experiences, the content of our experiences have more value than suffering, more worth than to suffer along. When we are aware of the awareness or just being aware, just seeing and noting, there's more value in that than the suffering. There's more value in me becoming aware of racism rather than just suffering it. And then that was the liberation for me personally. I don't know if that worked for everyone. But in looking at it and understanding the nature of it, 
and the pervasiveness of it. It was just one gate, gateway. I don't only speak and look through one gateway of race. There's many gateways that I could look through and I do. There's, there's hundreds of gateways to look through. I, I am not so much concerned about um, centers necessarily, Buddhist centers or Zen centers uh, becoming diverse. That's a strategy to me and it's okay. It's not something where my interest lies. My interest lies in the transformation of humanity and people and in and, and doing that work, because it's too easy to do the other one. <laughs> it's just too easy and simple. I want us to do the hard work, because I did some hard work. <laughs> I want us to do that work together and safely. And I know it takes some study like you're doing and work like you're doing so that it can be safe for everyone, a safe environment for everyone. But, um, I've had to call a few people, <laughs> a few centers, Buddhist centers, um, um, because I am concerned about the young ones coming in. And I'm not talking age. I'm talking new to meditation, new to Zen, new to Zazen, and suddenly within maybe a year or two becoming president or becoming a teacher, and they haven't set yet. And this is happening a lot. And so um, I, I think it's okay if there is somebody that has that uh, skill, but I think it's important to not uh, hijack a practice from someone because of their color to, to present them, you know, and uh, before it's time. And to, uh, to use that uh, to uh, show that one center is diverse or, or anything like that. There's nothing to show, there's just work to do. Nothing to show. Does it? It doesn't matter what is on the outside. If the inside is being worked, the outside, from my experience, changes. I have an all-black sangha not because I created one. They created that sangha themselves. My sangha was open to everyone, and it's all black. My sangha was open to everyone and it's all black. What is the nature of that? What is the fear, you know, whatever. We decided to keep it that way right after Trump got voted in. We decided this was the way we wanted to do it. And it's been wonderful because we work on internalized oppression, internalized racism, which most times in most places, the racism is not, is not worked around internalizing it. It's um, invoking and unlearning whiteness. And, um, and people of color are in that space without anything um, for themselves. Uh, so, um, and I'm really um, concerned even about a lot of money going toward unlearning whiteness and more whiteness and more whiteness and no money going to help people of color work with internalized oppression because both, both have to be happen <laughs> so that we're in the room, everyone's safe and everyone has their medicine to do the work. So this just, if I, and I've made some proposals to different places 
it's not it's not exciting. They don't want to do internalized oppression. They want to do racism for everybody, so that everybody, especially the donors, are benefited. And the donors are usually white. So this is how racism works. This is how our minds work when we use that uh, place where we think we're doing it. We are doing that work. And when we could release, even I have to release myself. I'm not doing any work on. I tell them when we talk, we can talk till we die. I cannot end internalized oppression for you. I cannot. I can only present the medicine and the path of which I walked. That's not necessarily a political stance, even though I am political. It's not that stance. That's not what I speak of. I speak of it in terms and embedded in Zazen and Zen and not in Buddha and not in Buddha's teachings either through experience, the content of my experience and what I have become aware of in the content of my experience. And that's, that's the base, that's the foundation. What is the content of the experience? I think that's important to look at. Um, I would like to open it up for questions. I think, I don't know how many more minutes I have, but I think they'll let me know. Uh, <laughs> when to be quiet. <laughs> so uh, any questions, um, I guess you can raise hands, I imagine. Zenju, you have as much time as you like. You can go okay. as long as you like, so. Okay. Do you wanna recognize people? Um, it doesn't matter, how does it happen? <laughs> Every place I go is different. Yeah, um, there are a lot of people here um, we can do sometimes just have people raise their actual hands. I like also sometimes use the raised hand feature. I like the raised hand feature because I can't see the whole. <laughs> yeah, there is about, uh, I have about five screens worth of people. Yeah, so <laughs> raised hand um, feature, wherever Does that everyone is. know how to do that? On, uh, in my version of Zoom, which is I think up to date, it's uh, at the bottom of the screen, there, it says reactions. And if you click on that, at the bottom of that, there's a raised hand feature. So if you would like to participate in this way, I will try to be on the lookout for you. Um, I okay. see the first person I saw was Mary Shepard. So okay, Mary. Mary, yeah. You can unmute yourself, Mary. <laughs> okay, I, um, I'm trying to put navigate the screen. Um, first, thank you for your teaching. Thank you. Uh, I first wanted to say uh, that I often have a, um, looked for and, and have been thinking in the last six months about um, right action. And uh, I've been invited to join a number of groups, uh, well-meaning um, uh, practitioners who are reading books uh, about how to be an anti-racist and uh, unpacking racism. And, and 
yours is the, um, I, I would say the unique voice to talk about what I think is the first step in, in my path of right action, which is internalized oppression and working on internalized oppression. Because I have felt inadequate to sit in and join groups of um, fellow practitioners who are um, European American slash white people, um, because it, it's very hurtful for me to, I had one meeting and one conversation where a, a fellow practitioner was talking about um, his, his harboring of racist ideas. And it was so wounding and so hurtful to me that I, I just felt I didn't have Th that sitting in on more sessions was a sort of like, almost like beating up on myself. So I felt inadequate to join the conversations. Okay. So, so I thank you for talking about um, this first, uh, this, this first inkling of an approach as working through the working on internalized oppression. I am so grateful to you for it. And, um, and that's, uh, that is a very helpful to me to know as a way to get started on the work I need to do. So thank you. Okay. I also um, encourage you to, um, continue to work with where the pain is, where it was hard and where it's difficult, even though it sounded like that, that um, sanctuary for you was unsafe, but to find one in which that same uncomfortableness comes up. So this is not comfort work. This is not comfortable, whether it's internalized or not. This is not, it doesn't feel good. It hurts, makes you cry. You know, um, I've been doing it all my life um, and suffering. And I think it, it, we're often trying to, when we come into uh, any path, whether it's political, spiritual, we're always looking for that water. But at the door is always fire because it's, the fire is you. It's always fire at the door. And, um, and then there's the water. Can you stand the fire? Can you come through the fire? I mean, I came through the fire, okay? <laughs> Coming through Zen, and it came through the fire. It was at the door. I, I wasn't necessarily looking for water, but I did come to the water, you know, and the water was still hot. So, you know, so it's, it's this notion that it must be, again, kind. What, you know, look into yourself and see what, what it should look like to you. It, does it need to be this, 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 this? And why? What is it? Why should it serve those things within you to make it happen for you? You know, to look at that. And I, I, I say that with all my students who are Black. What is it that you're you needing everything to be this way so that you can be? That's like being in relationship to someone or something and trying to change it so it, you can fit in that relationship, right? I'm going to change that person. I'm going to make them just like my dream person. You know, this is going to be my dream center. This is going to be my dream. Everything's a dream, right? 
And so looking at what that is so that you can be in the world no matter what you run up against, because don't you know that I run up against everything and all of it daily, 365, 24 seven. And there's no getting out of it unless I do something harmful to myself to end my life. But that is life. So, so I'm just inviting that to look at safety, but also to look at what is it that you're looking for it to be and, the, and why? What is the reason behind it? Or what is it that you're needing? And can that situation, uh, is that the way for you to do it? And also, like I tell uh, my students all the time, trust the practice as well, you know, to trust the practice, the, tr the practice, you don't have to go off into some internalized oppression work. You can just sit zazen and get inside yourself, you know, and see, you know, wh where you are around and to note your own uh, consciousness, you know, your own mind, your own speech, you know, because you have obviously some speech in your mind because you didn't like the speech of that situation. So discover that, what it is, rather than trying to find people who could be in speak like you speak, you know? So uh, that's just an offering, just kind of like a push. Cause we're in this, right now we're in the world where we, we are pushing, we need to push, you know? And we're being pushed, whether you're, you're sitting still or not, you're being pushed. Even if you're trying to prevent yourself from COVID and you've been in your house forever, you know, since March, <laughs> There was a woman who was in her house. She was being careful and she still got, I mean, people are still getting it. They don't know how. So anyway, I, there's quite a few questions. I hope that's helpful. Um, you know, there's so many people to talk with and I thank you for, uh, you know, what you're sharing today, Mary. Really thank you for that. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Rich. Rich is next. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Osho. Mm -hmm. um, can I ask you about your book, The Way of Tenderness, right? I know it's not the book that you're... Mm -hmm. Right, no problem. Mm -hmm. uh, so I heard what you said just now in your speech or your talk, I mean, um, about we don't necessarily have to make things a certain way. But you also write in this about cultural sanctuaries and how they could be beneficial and... Um, Mm -hmm. What do you, could you talk a little bit about that? And what does that mean? What, what could a predominantly white sangha like ours do with this, with a cultural sanctuary idea? If, if that's even an idea, something worth exploring. So if you make a culture, you go outside of Austin Zen Center, uh, as you are, your schedule, and you make this separate cultural sanctuary something group, then that's, that's you shaping and manipulating. That is not received necessarily. You know, so you have to sit and see is why that because Zenji wrote it in her book. So the sanctuaries that um, I have been a part of have come up through uh, cultural strife and trouble and chaos and change. They've come up through that quite naturally, and then you say, "Oh, we're we're a sanctuary." They they happen naturally, you know, they do. So we're a sanctuary now. What? And that doesn't mean it's perfection, right? that there's no perfection there because sanctuaries, they also have what? Oppression within them. You're not necessarily, you know, you have a sanctuary, you have a sanctuary um, as a Zen center. 
that is a sanctuary. It is a cultural sanctuary. What kind of cultural sanctuary is it? Wait and see, don't decide it. So when I say receive, you know, rather than, okay, this is a good idea. I had someone call me, a teacher at University of Wisconsin called me a professor and he said, I read your book, The Way of Tenderness. I need you to tell me how to be. <laughs> you know, as I need you to give me some directions. I'm a white guy. Tell me how to do it. And I said, yeah, I'm not going to tell you because I already say that in the book. I'm not going to tell you. And I didn't say the reason, though. I should have put the reason in the book. The reason is because so you create a cultural sanctuary, you just have another place in which you have to struggle. You have Zen, you have a, whatever, whatever groups you have, you're still going to have to struggle. I told this professor, I said, um, if I tell you what to do now, and then that was in 2015 when the book was written, if I tell you that, which it was written the same year as my, I wrote for my teacher's books, so I was doing two books at the same time. I said, you will, I will tell you something and then you will try to use it in the year 2021. It'll be a different time, it'll be different people, it'll be a different place, it'll be different circumstances and that thing will not work. It will not, you will not be present with what's in the moment right now. You know, and it'll, it'll come off as that, like you're trying to do, force something into the experience that's happening in the moment. The only thing we can trust, it's not out there. It's just not out there. Cultural sanctuaries are important. They're empowering. Identity is empowering. I suggest those things to help people who find Zen, especially people of color, um, Black, Indigenous, and people of color, to find a place, a way to weigh in. I came in through the uh, people of color group at the San Francisco Zen Center. Most of the people there don't even know that one existed. There were like 40 of us and we practice every week, you know? And so that was a sanctuary for me not to stay in and to gaze into the blackness I came in with. It was a sanctuary to understand and learn and see the ever evolving blackness that there is and that will be. And I mean, it was amazing for me to, to come in. Cause I came in already. I knew all, I mean, I had a degree in Pan-African studies, so I don't, I didn't need, you know, oppression one-on-one and uh, anything around a systemic oppression. I needed the practice that was being offered. And I saw the practice not as, um, uh, what we like, even this part, it's not even the talking, the talking's extra, it's cherry on top. This is extra, but the practice of sitting was I, I began to trust and I stayed in the midst of all the, the homophobia, misogyny, you know, um, racism, because I knew that was in the world too. And I said, if I could sit here, not everybody can do this. I came in with already 15 years of another tradition to sit in and see what would be received, not what I could shape of my life. I didn't come in shaping Zen Center. Okay, you guys need to, you need to, you need to. I wrote The Way of Tenderness 17 years after I was at Zen Center. I didn't write it at the gate of fire. It would have been a whole different book at the gate of fire. 
So I had my hands out and that's what I received. And then I was able to shape it, even though I still had that quest around race and, all, and gender and sexuality and all these things, you know, that just landed. And I, and I was happy because I could speak of what I've been speaking about already all my life in a way to me that was aligned with the earth, aligned with awareness, aligned with everything in the world. And it was just really hard to do in the beginning because I don't want to align with that. I'm, I'm aligning with, um, you know, the movement. <laughs> like, whoa, I'm in the movement, you know. So to not, to, to even to eventually leave the, uh, the people of color group, because I wanted to learn Oriyoki. I wanted to learn all the, all the rituals because I love ritual and ceremony. That's the main reason why I stayed. And I'm writing another book that will come out soon around that um, whole um, notion of looking at this practice as mimicking life as a ceremony and with rituals that mimic life that teaches how to be together and to be in this life. That's what Zen is to me. So I could just kind of like pass on over some of the racist stuff, not that I didn't get hurt, I suffered, I cried, I did all of the things any normal human being <laughs> would do. And I um, still wanted that medicine. And it was, um, it was in the rituals and ceremonies, not in the Dharma talks, not in who taught me. I mean, Zen K. Blanche was a great Zen mama. You know, I just walked with her and um, she loved the practice so much. And I couldn't understand what is it that she loves? You know, <laughs> I said, she's got to, I got to walk with her. And she just loved Zazen. And she loved the rituals and she loved the ceremonies and she transmitted that to me. And that's what I love too. That's what I love. I don't, I didn't need to be in anything. And then I learned to walk with the hurt. I, I was prepared for Trump <laughs> after 20 years of sittings in, I was prepared for that. And I could see what that was gonna be about, not about Trump. I could see it was even, you know, I could see even with Obama, I had concerns there as well when he came in. I said, oh God, we're going to have a war. And we did as soon as he got in, <laughs> you know, Afghanistan. I said, wow. So it's looking at it all in and out, inward, outward reflection. So I, I can't suggest that you have a cultural sanctuary. I don't know. I suggest you, you have one already. And I suggest that um, when, and you may not be able to be anything for the people who come in, there was no way Zen Sitter could be what I needed in terms of my own oppression. But they're, they're there to offer me a place to eat and sleep and work and be so that I could have my hands out for a little while instead of working. They gave me that an environment to do that, which is what I always suggest to people when you go to retreats. Eat the food, sleep, walk, offer incense, no, no um, meetings. You know, I tell that to my students, don't go to any meetings while you're there. <laughs> now they go to retreats on their own because they, they have, you know, a place, to, a community to come back to. They have me, 
you know, to come back to, to talk with. And, but I think that it's, everyone needs somebody probably to talk with but about it because, or you need to be guided in any ceremony. Think about any ceremony you've been to. There's guiding, there's gonna be a ceremony next Saturday at your center, um, um, a wedding. Look at that wedding as the same as sitting, zazen, as retreat. Look at that wedding as that and the celebration of life and, and look at all the rituals that will happen in that wedding. I think it would be fascinating for you to see the interrelationship of that wedding to this practice, to not just Zen, but any kind of meditation practice. You don't have to be Zen or any kind of spiritual practice. Okay, all right. Thank you, Rich. Okay, um, who's next? Jose. Yes. Okay. Yes, okay. Thank All you. Right. Thank Hi. you so much for your wonderful talk. Um, mm -hmm. One of the things that uh, that you uh, uprooted in my own head today was this notion of peace. Uh, so when I uh, normally when I think of peace, I think, oh, I'm walking in a park and there are birds and there are insects and so on. It's a very peaceful place for me. But of course, I have the privilege of not being an insect and getting eaten at any moment. Uh, and so there's suffering all around me when I'm in a park, uh, and I feel like oh, you know, I can just ignore all of that suffering and feel like I'm at peace. Um, and so, uh, and so uh, when uh, I'm still, I'm still uh, struggling to understand this notion of peace, which uh, I'm not asking you to define, mm -hmm. um, but uh, could it be that uh, particularly in my own case where uh, I, I encounter people who, uh, who uh, undergo a systemic oppression, uh, who internalize this oppression, and there's nothing I can do because I don't feel like I'm the right person. I, like I, this, it's 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 a kind of suffering that I'll never be able to uh, understand the same way. And so I feel a lot of helplessness uh, that I can't help, or I can't. And see, that's a problem. Even just thinking that I'm going to help another person, um, uh, that I, okay. I rather just being open to their suffering. Uh, and at the same time, I also feel a lot of guilt because uh, my mind and body do uh, harbor trace amounts of uh, do and harbor uh, racism from our own society. Uh, it, it's impossible to wash away. Uh, and so all this uh, gives me this big knot of feelings that uh, make it difficult for me to interact uh, uh, initially with, a, with another black person. Um, and, uh, and it's something that uh, causes me a lot of uh, stress and suffering. Uh, and so uh, could it be that uh, your notion of peace is being able to look into this knot of feelings for my own self uh, and uh, to, uh, uh, to, uh, to find this relationship uh, and to find some, uh, where can I find peace in this situation? Okay. So you don't go looking for it. It arises on its own. You don't go, because if you do, you're going to go, okay, that's not peaceful. You go into the Zen though, that's not peaceful. You know, this old Zen is really not peaceful. Okay. You know, they just work too much. They bow too much. They talk too much. Oh, I don't like this. You know, it's, I'm going and I don't like the people. Never mind. So, you know, because <laughs> it doesn't look like what, 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 like on TV, where, where is your conceptualization around it that's bumping up against the actual experience? You know, what, where is it that um, within you, you can't just be you? What are you afraid of? You know, yes, maybe your racist thinking will come through, you know, but then are you open to just being who you are? you know, but not abrasive with it, you know, um, you do, there is, there is some learning that you know that you have to do that. I could hear you saying that, 
So there is peace in knowing who you are and how you are. It doesn't mean that you stay with yourself because we're never with ourselves. Even though there's an individual, we have our individual experiences, there is always the collective experience too. So that suffering you understand is so great. It's, it's paralyzing you. Did it not paralyze me? The same suffering around racism? Yes. Same paralyzing. We have the same afflictions. It's expressed differently, but we have the same afflictions as human beings expressed differently. Study that. Study how it's expressed in you. And I study how it's expressed in me in my life because it's certainly gonna come out in how I interact with people, you know, no matter who they are, you know, or what they do, you know, it's gonna come out. You know, I, there was a point, I just really didn't wanna deal with people at all in my life. I think it was, I was in my you know, 40, early forties or something. And um, it was to get away, trying to have some kind of, uh, fake peace, I call it, because um, it wasn't living. It, I wasn't interacting. I didn't have life. And because I didn't have life and I wasn't interacting, guess what? who showed up? Depression. Because <laughs> life becomes very flat without interactions with people. So I knew I had to learn how to do it through fear. And I had to learn how to do it as, as who I am, everything about who I am. And, to, and I wanted to live this life fully and that I got that, you know, as soon as I got into a Zen practice is that I wanted to live a full life, you know? And so I think it's important that you, um, I think mind that fear that you have because it's in your head, you know, again, it's that head thing. And then you're trying to create, you said it yourself, you got, it as you were speaking, you were creating that, that peace and you can't really create peace. You can't create peace. You can't create compassion. You can't create wisdom. You can't create loving kindness. Okay, so let's just shut the door. I, but I came for, oh no, because these things, these absolute ways of being and experience are to, you can experience them, but they come to you. You don't make it happen. As soon as you start making oneness happen, then somebody's out of that oneness. Somebody's gonna be, not be a part of it. Soon as it has to be Zen, somebody's not gonna do it right. They're not going to fit. They got to go. You know, so, you know, there's this thing I think that we get, I think, love Buddhism because it has such the virtue in it, you know, it's so exciting to us. But then we get in and we're going, where's that virtue? Where's all that nice stuff Buddha's supposed to be? <laughs> She's arguing at me. She's yelling. That's not Buddhist. I had somebody tell me that. <laughs> You're arguing. That's not Buddhist. Like suddenly you're not human. So and then and so that that could create for a fearful life because the human being is just sitting there behind and going, hey, hello, I'm trying to, I'm human, you know, sitting back there. And we're to be human, fully human. Even even Suzuki Roshi said that. Be fully human. Because if you're not in this ritual, you're not present for the ritual and ceremony, then you're you're just a robot. And I've seen a few. <laughs> is it? You're just a robot. And I'm feeling a thing. When is this going to be over? You know, 
you know, notice if you feel like that, even at, at the wedding, is this going to be over soon? <laughs> you know, notice that we, there's a misunderstanding about the, we don't have a lot of rituals and ceremonies culturally as a whole culture. We have so many diverse uh, uh, religions and spiritual paths, but they meet somewhere, you know, and they meet in the inner, in the inner world and, and nurturing that inner world so you can see, not stay in the inner world, you know? So if you're frightened, you know, which a teacher had told me once, they were frightened of uh, people of color. She said, said, because they're always angry. And I said, they're exactly where they should be. Wouldn't you be angry if you were shut out of everything, all the resources? And they're being fully human. So they get to come in and they get to sit, they get to be angry, rageful, that that's right there where they should be and do the ceremony and see how the ceremony will work upon one's life hands open you can't even manipulate a zen practice some people do i'm going to get ordained and i'm going to be shuso and i'm going to live at tasahara <laughs> you know they got it all planned out you know and that's okay it's going to what all that does is leads you continually back to yourself. Everything you do is going to be back to yourself. Every person you meet, and if they're black and they make you afraid, that's going to keep happening. There's nothing I can do. Only you can do that. Your fear. I only could deal with my fear of whiteness, of being succumbed to the great oppression. <laughs> I, I only I can work through that and live a full life, but I have to recognize it, and I have to um, be able to um, allow myself to be in that place. Like tremble, I trembled a lot in in the beginning of my Zen practice. Tremble, tremble, tremble. Allow the trembling because the trembling is exactly what's going to happen right before the death, because you're going to die. <laughs> Zen is going to kill you. <laughs> I didn't write a book, Zen will kill you. It will kill you, you know, because if you're, if you're actually doing the ceremonies, only if you let go, but if you're not going to let go, you're going to hold on to what you came in with. You probably won't die. You just kind of suffer a little bit, <laughs> suffer, suffer, suffer. But, you know, it will, it will take away everything. You will be exposed. It exposes you. So that's why if we're in, in a multicultural situation and we're being exposed to each other without not knowing what to do, that's why I like the rituals and ceremonies. Be quiet and do the rituals and the ceremonies and see how that affects how you see. Not working on samadhi, not working on whatever, you know, let all the terms fall away. All the Buddhist terms fall away. I really worked on that with uh, The Deepest Peace. I tried not to write a, a book full of Buddha language. <laughs> it's in there somehow, but I know I learned a new language that's not English. <laughs> you know, or you start, even if you say noble truth, noble what? Noble truth. Uh, right speech, anything of those things, that's just Buddha, Buddhist language. Change that language for yourself. What is it? If you're fearful, there's no way you could practice. So you gotta get be unfearful and just use the rituals. 
use Zazen. That's what I did. That's why I offer it. Of course, I had a few other things <laughs> under my belt, but it was it was it was Zazen. I can say. Somebody asked me, "How did you write in the, at Tassahara after a talk? How did you how did you change and transform?" And I and she was waiting for me to have this big story, and I said Zazen. And later on, she said, "I was really shocked about that answer you gave, and I didn't understand why she would be shocked after I had been there for fifteen years." <laughs> like. Why are you asking the question? Because what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? My goodness. What? And ask yourself, what are you? I ask myself that all the time. What the hell am I doing? Still, even in teaching, what am I doing? Why am I here? I have to ask myself. And I don't have the answer until I go through the gateway. And then every time I go to do another talk, I ask the question again. Now, why am I talking? Why am I doing this talk? Why am I leading this retreat? Why do I wear these clothes? What is What the hell is going on? <laughs> what am I doing? And I don't answer it. I don't answer those questions. Because my mind will tell me all kinds of things. And then when I'm in trouble. <laughs> Real trouble. Yeah. Yeah. I'm doing what I do anyway, which, was, which is live and breathe and maybe it has a lot of entrapments but i'm doing what i would be doing anyway talking sleeping eating drinking i'm just doing it with you all today at this time nothing special okay next thank you thank you <clears throat> tim is next tim okay yes Hi, tim. Uh, hello zenju good good to see you again good to see you uh, again Thank you so much for being with us today. Um, and I also uh, trembled early in practice uh, quite a bit, and it was a kind of miserable feeling. Um, and yet, looking back, I'm grateful for that uh, experience. Um, I really appreciated you starting your, your talk with this kind of, um, you know, simple being in the natural world. And um, I got this sense of you kind of soaking in the, the scene or the, the, the place. And, and, uh, and then I was also really touched by this metaphor of um, in our hands in the sense of receiving. And, and um, I wondered if you could maybe say something more. It's kind of keeps coming up in the talk and I hear a lot of wisdom, but um, about the difference between this kind of receiving and shaping um, and how in my own experience, even you know, a moment of receiving might feel good. And then the next thought is, how do I use this good feeling to shape and uh, manipulate? You know? okay. So it's, it's kind of back and forth, but fighting it in a way. Um, mm -hmm. But I wonder if you could say something about sure. the practice of that's, that. That's a really good question, Tim. Um, thank you. Um, Often when we receive something, and I used to be that way, I would be so excited, like, wow. And then that manipulative mind, that one that wants to take action and make it mine, gets busy. And I realized I was getting busy too soon. I would, even in my writing, like, okay, I'm going to write that. And it turned, you know, like a book has to be at least 30,000 words. And, you know, I'm going to start writing this and it, and it would end at 500 words. <laughs> the end of the idea. 
because I would I didn't take time to reflect and in, in view to go in and out to reflect in view. So in in I'm not trying to sell my books because I don't you know I don't necessarily live off this the selling of the books. So you know I'm not rich because I have books or any any of that. And then even some of the people who have written some very popular books, I'm telling you, I know a lot of authors are not rich. So. <laughs> So I, I want to say in the book, I talk about uh, sculpting in the book because I, I, I was taught to sculpt by this wonderful person. And, um, and you take the alabaster and you, um, you know, you, it was pounding, pound and pound and pound. And I got this huge, we went out to get the stone. Everybody picked their stone because we're all beginners. Most people pick these really tiny stones. And I picked the 80 pound strawberry alabaster it would look delicious you know like oh great you know this is this is for me it's gigantic because I had to have to move it out you know have people move it around so I, when I got it I had this idea of um making three faces in this stone and I talked about that in the book and I was just so excited because I could just you know bump 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 so I started doing, you know, this is my first stone. Like I'm thinking I know what to do with it. And I, you know, I'm going, pop, 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 and I'm making this stone. And as soon as I put the nose on one, I was like, that nose is too big. Should I chip it off? That nose is way too big. Those cheeks are too big. Everything's too big to make three faces. What am I going to do? I don't have enough stone, even with 80 pounds of stone. I can't make the three faces. Do I start all over again? I, oh my God, this is not working out for me. And so I'm still going along. I'm learning from the teacher. You know, we're continuing with the big nose. Yes, big nose, big lips. I wish I could show it to you right now. Big nose, big lips, big eyes, this hair out here. You know, it's like, what the hell? I went along with that. That process lasted for, I was kind of like disappointed and for like a month and another month and another month. And then I think about the third or fourth month, about the fourth or fifth month, it was, you know, time to sand it, sanding it, sand it. You know, this is not what I was going to make. And so when you sand it, you have to move around the stone. You have to move around it. And I hadn't really moved around it. I only laid it down and worked on it like that. When I moved around it, I saw on the left side was one face. On the front was another. And on the right was another face. There were three faces in that one stone and it revealed itself to me later months later and it was just kind of like when i let go and just went month after month and day after day to let it be what it was that um i received <laughs> in the end but it takes a lot of a long time to receive because we want to receive and use it for our own selves, to better ourselves, to whatever, to move ahead. You know, it's using, uh, I had an African teacher tell me, African Sangoma, tell me that when you use your practice like that, like it's a very, you re kind of reduce your practices, very primal thing where it's like a fork or something, you know, like it's feeding, you know, but rather than it's, its highest place, you know, the widest place, I would say, that it can take you to. So that was a very wide, expansive place that stone took me to, not only in the stone, but in myself, you know, and understanding uh, this piece of earth. It was, a, you know, a stone's a piece of earth, you know, so understanding it and um, 
and being with what it was as it was. And I still, I've, I've done many pieces since, a few pieces, not many, and that still is my favorite one. And it's still to me the most beautiful one uh, piece that I've done. And so I think there's a way when we can just step back and let go, you know, even as we're walking, not trying to like, even though I said, I saw the uh, birds, the cranes and the earth and a whole lot is going on. It's just a reminder that it's going on and it's going to go on. And all of these things that go on can be used. So even in my angst and despair and disappointment, I could I used it to walk with for two or three months to finish that sculpture. You can use it, all the things that we're given in life as human beings, every single thing, even if it's just as small as uh, we got the wrong pair of shoes, you know, <laughs> small as that. There's a learning in there, you know, like, oh, I got those shoes because I really liked them and I got them anyway and I knew they hurt my feet, you know, so you, you learn and um, some of us are still, you know, learning about ourselves, you know, and in small ways and some of us are learning about ourselves in larger ways, you know, and, and that is to me where the peace is, peace is there. The peace is in that way in which you're looking out into the world, viewing, knowing, and seeing the whole picture. So you're not only seeing peace. I don't, you know, rush off to Tazahara to get some peace. You know, shouldn't have to do that. And then you, or you rush off to anywhere and, and get peace. You know, um, that that's okay to take retreats from the world. I, I had to do it. But at the same time, what is in your own life that you can have in the moment and know? And sometimes that's understand, just an understanding that everything is happening and where you're going to enter it and how you're going to enter it. What state of consciousness are you going to enter it with? If I kept in, you know, the state of consciousness, this is, I would just got another stone that I thought would fit. Now, I probably would end up with 10 stones before I got to the, you know, three phases, 10 unfinished stones, you know. So I think that that's a, it was an important um, journey for me, a very deep spiritual journey to not be the one that was molding it to not be God, not be the creator. There's creativity, but do we have to be the creator? There is creativity, but do we have to be the creator? That's pretty hard. Like I like to create too. I, like, I love creating crafty. But when I'm writing, if I really create it, I would probably never have a book out because my process in my mind would go on and on and on and on and on. I would never have a book. But when I let go, finally something comes. When I just, and just see what it is and I keep playing around with what it is. Sometimes it may not be a book. I think I have a book out there. I don't feel it's a book, <laughs> but you know, I, I don't, you know, so I, why? Because I have some idea in my mind of some, I didn't get to manipulate it <laughs> in the way that I wanted to. So um, I'm not sure. Okay, do I keep going? Um, there are five people who would still like to ask a question, but it's up to you when to say that's enough. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> I... Um, I want to get, to, let's get to these five. Let's take a, a little bit of sound break. How about that? Just a, a moment of, of silence, just, you know, quiet for a minute. And I'm gonna use the bell for that too.
All right, Rebecca. Okay, so um, I would ask that people don't raise their hands after, if you haven't already got your hand up to refrain. <laughs> and sorry, we can't get to everyone. Um, Valentina is next. Okay, and just I, before oh, you speak, Valentina, just so you all know, um, if you go to my website, there's a lot of more talks and similar and also uh, retreats similar. <laughs> and so all my books are similar. They all have the same message. So you, there, there, there are hopefully answers in there. Okay, Valentina. Uh, the last person sort of asked the same question that I have, but it, can you talk about um, the, you know, I'm involved in activist work in my community uh, around my union and my workplace. Um, and there's a lot of really exciting anti-racist work in a very multicultural environment. Um, and it's very exciting. Um, and it is, it is my dream. You know what I mean? It is, it is like, I didn't think that I was ever gonna be in this position to be participating in a group like this that has um, real world um, impact in our workplaces. Um, and I hear what you're saying about manipulating and, and uh, trying to control, but then also you use the word pushing, you know, of course we can't just say whatever, you know, and can you talk about how a good way to sort those things out of not giving up, but not controlling? Okay. Um... I'm gonna assume you mean not giving up is like not doing anything, you know, just allowing things. I don't, not sure. Uh, I'm mute. I'm mute. I'm mute. Yeah. Uh, not uh, being passive. Not being too passive. Okay. All right. So, do you feel? Keep unmuted. Do you feel that um, uh, being? Um, in the practice is passive? No. Okay. It's a lot no. of effort to make myself do it. Okay, effort to make yourself do it. So there's a bit of work going on there. Yeah. A bit of work, okay. Um, does it, is it the same work and the same energy effort in your activist work? Is it is the same or similar? It's different in that <laughs> meditating is harder for me than going to a meeting where I'm where I'm co-creating with these people. Okay. So what I see is a positive future. Okay. So positive future is the result in the carrot, right? That keeps you moving and keeps you activated. And so meditation is not, it doesn't have a result that you can touch and that you can grab and that you can hold. So it's difficult, you know, it makes it really difficult. What would happen if you allowed that to, to put most of your effort only because I know you're doing it already. I wouldn't, if you weren't doing, you know, meditation or something, but to the effort is not necessarily working hard on yourself are working hard anywhere, but allowing um, things to come up 
and trusting that what will come up can be used to and benefit everything that you do in or out, everything that you do. And that all of it feels like a seamless movement of life. Not working over here, not working over there. Are, are you exhausted quite a bit? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you get exhausted in that working, you know, for something, you know. Um, so even I notice, even as myself, because I, you know, I had activism inside of me and who I am. But when I worked at the practice, uh, it was more exhausting. I had um, someone come to me in a retreat. And he said, I, I just, I just can't sit. I keep counting five, four, three. you know, he keeps counting up to a hundred, you know, breath, our breath out, boo, breath in, duh, you know, and I said, you know what, you're already a worker and you're, you're reinforcing your working. And I think that that no matter whether you're in that meeting or in inside is to look at the nature of yourself as reinforcing your reinforcing this work and what that's about and what's motivating you. And and do you always have to have a, a goal and a you know, result of everything? Your result, that's your result, not the result that can come to you because you don't know what that result is. You'd have no idea. Mm -hmm. You want to have an idea so you can have a reason for what you're doing, but you have no idea what's coming to you. And you know that because a lot of things have came to you that it's like, oh my God, what is happening? That happens all the time, probably mostly. <laughs> you have no idea. You know, so the student was counting and counting. I said, you know, why don't you go back and um, to the Zendo and just sit there? I don't want you to count. I don't want you to do any breath. You don't have to have a downward gaze. You don't have to have a mudra. You don't have to have a posture. Actually, I want you to look around the Zendo and find some beautiful windows, some beautiful, ooh, the wood's beautiful. You know, I want you to just sit there and have a time of just sitting. Just sit, you don't have to be still. If your leg moves, move your leg. If your arm moves, move your leg. So I just want you to take this time to sit and just see how, what you have given yourself and that you are stopping, which most people in the world, it's profound to stop in the midst of all that's happening, right? Very profound to stop, listen, see, witness, observe, and be, that, that's profound. You know, so I think that it's important um, to, and when I see a bunch of people do it together, that, that's why I love, I love Zazen, where we're just all these different people and profoundly just there. With all of our ideas and ways of being, we're just there for the moment. We're taking this time out. Um, one of the readers said, it's really good that you, you're going away to meet God. I was on my way to Tassahar, that you're taking time at your life to go meet God. I was like, okay. So, you know, I took that in and I'll never forget it because that's what it felt like, you know, that, that to, to thank God for the life that, you, that you've given, to, to um, absorb it and relish it. That's what she was saying. And I was like, wow, that was like the best instruction to go off to do to, to Tassahara. But I think that the, the effort to look at how um, that working is uh, keeping you from just being. So the, the student that just started to be and look around, he came back, he said, that was the best Zazen I ever had, you know, because he wasn't working. And he, you could see it on his face. He was really enjoying, suddenly enjoying the practice. You know, he was smiling all the time. And, you know, it's like, wow, that, you know, he, he stopped working. That's all. 
We're here to stop working. If we work every little thing, good God, we are, we are smart. Woof. Human beings are very smart. We're very intelligent. And it, it works to our disadvantage sometimes when it comes to spiritual path, because we bring that little intelligent brain along or anywhere we go. Even when we go to other places, it means we still bring that same intelligent little brain that knows how to do everything. And if you know how to do everything, what are you doing? <laughs> what are we doing? What are we doing here right now? We, I got my students always, they laugh. I said, you know, we could go to the beach. Someone make some sandwiches. I like potato chips, bring some potato chips and let's have fun. <laughs> let's hang out. So what, ask yourself, what are you doing? when you're working so hard and, and knowing that life comes to you in such a beautiful way. Sometimes they hurt, sometimes they don't. Sometimes it's like rain, it's a storm, and sometimes it's just this really light snow or, or sunlight. You know, so how is it coming to you, you know? How is life coming to you? So then you can come to it where it is, not where you wanna take it to, you know, where, where it is. And it's hard sometimes, especially right now, what we're coming to, you know, just to sit with uh, disease, pandemic, and all kinds of stuff going on, you know. And there's no helplessness or hopelessness if you yourself are interacting with you yourself, developing a relationship that would be effective when you're in the interrelationship. Because you're in the interrelationship anyway. There's no way out of it. So when you go to the meetings, not like, oh, I need to bring my Zen mind. No, not really. Because that means something. Bring yourself and see if Zen shows up. <laughs> Whatever that is, bring yourself. Bring yourself. And you can't bring yourself if you're working. You can't. You, you're not. You can't. It's, just, it's too much. Because what is your stuff and what's arising. So take a day or two. I did this myself. And don't add anything to it. There's already probably an appointment or something like that, but don't add anything else and see what comes up that day <clears throat> for you. Do it the next day and see what comes up for that day. Then look and see how you want to fill up that afternoon or something. Well, I'll just fill up. I have nothing to do. Well, maybe you need nothing to do, you know, for something to come through. We have to stop for something to come through. You can't be whipping around. And, and thinking something's coming to you when you're whipping. Something may be, it may be there, you just haven't noticed. It may already landed in your hand and you're so busy you flipped it out and gone on about your business. Like, oops, I don't know what that was. <laughs> gone to the next thing. You know, I really like that question because I, I definitely was much of a worker bee, you know, of everywhere I go and everything I do. And so uh, when I let go, uh, life just, I really began to love life. I love to live. I really enjoy life. Even when it brings me the most horrendous things that it has all the time. Horrendous. I always feel like, oh, I'm suffering more than everyone else. It's been, I have been through the ringer. And now suffering is, I don't suffer the suffering. I, I know when the suffering is there, something is coming through. For me and I don't know what it is I just know something's coming through and I wait for it and who's coming through 
or what's coming through. Mostly I see myself coming through, becoming more and more authentic, more in love with life, each breath. And not that love that I have to give or compassion I have to give, but it will, it, it comes through, you know, that compassion comes through because I'm open to the experience. I wasn't open to the experience always. I like, I don't, I want to be compassionate there, but I don't want to be compassionate over there. I want to love that person, but not that person. And when I discovered that that's a lot of work because I had to shift out a lot of people and go in and go out and go in and go out, a lot of work. When I just decided to just hold that for myself and just be, even if there was a person I didn't want to be around, I could be around with respect if I had to, you know, if that was the situation, be with, in respect and dignity and then um, and move along and just wait to see what, what comes. And so I've had some high training. I think we all have high training that we ignore. You know, we like our PhDs, but we really got some high life training that we ignore you know, our master's degrees, or, you know, I got all of those that they're, they're fine. I don't even use them. People go, Dr. Manuel, like, who's that? You know, I don't know what that means. <laughs> you know, I don't even know what Osho means, or sensei, or reverend, or any of those. What is, what is all of that? What do they all mean? You know, I ask myself that. And allow that, that to just speak to me in the time that it does. And when it does, it's like, wow, that's when I just fall in love with life. Like, wow, that I could never come up with that. Even in my, some of my writing, I, I cannot strategize some of that, you know? When I strategize, you probably could pick the places. <laughs> now she's trying to strategize something here. So anyway, thank you. Thank you. No. Thank you so much. Okay, all right. Um, next is Maureen. Um, Maureen. Hi. Okay. Hi, Maureen. Hi. Hi. How are you doing? <laughs> Good. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for your talk. I've got like uh, two two things. Um, one is like when you talk, what, what comes to me from my background is like, whoa, this is grace. Like this is like grace. Mm. Like you open up and boom, you know, which I love. So like I'm a grace person, you know, I, I, you know, you know what I mean? Like to me, that's amazing. Um, the second, the second thing is you, you said something like this, which was very powerful. And I wanted to ask you a little bit more about it, but you said, you know, you're looking for the water, but there's always fire at the door. And then when you get to the water, the water's still hot, which I found like really powerful. And so I wondered if you might talk a little bit more about your experience of going to the door and there was a fire. Okay. <laughs> Um, mostly everything I get myself involved in, in my life has been fire, everything. And, um, uh, or I go in for the deep dive. When I get to the water, I get to the, I go in for the deep dive. Um, when I started, um, uh, Zen practice, one of the first sits I went to was a, um, three week intensive designed for Tassajara to practice at Tassajara. I didn't know what it was and I signed up and later I found out, oh my God, they have day longs. One day, I could have gone for one day and I had gone through this three week thing, fire. And so, and it was fire, it was very intense, you know? And um, 
it it changed me. I talk about it a lot because it really did change me. Just I think I finished Zen in three weeks. I, mean, I really do. I think it was a very it was it was by trial by fire. And uh, in that, because I had never been in anything like that. And I was just like, whoa, what is happening? You know, every time we turn, what is happening? And so I think um, going to school, going to desegregated school with fire, going to um, um, <clears throat> all Jewish, white Jewish schools, you know, I was usually kind of like the only one sometimes fire. I went, when I went to college, fire. Uh, when I went to work, fire. Um, when I uh, marched and was a social activist and organized people to, you know, against the police in Los Angeles, fire. Everything I've done, you know, in my life, I always think it's fire because I go in thinking that um, I'm going to insert myself into these situations. I realized when I studied back, you know, why does it burn? So the, there's already fire there because there's the unknown. And, you know, you don't know the people, you don't know the place, you don't know anything that's getting ready to happen. But there's there's an insertion, you know, I'm putting myself in it. And that's what I think I'm doing. Later, I realized I've been guided to it, led to it, these places, you know, but that was later. And I think that regardless of me being the only one or any of these things that happened to me in my life, I just felt like they are fodder for the my life, for seeing my life and exploring my life and actually fodder for sharing my life because we share our lives. You know, we share life force. And if there weren't other people, even if you were strong and healthy and everything and you were the only person left you're just probably going to die really soon after the second to the last person dies because we're very connected we give each other life life force so giving life is in the fire right fire it begins with fire we came through friction that they in in some spiritual practices the fire is the where the ancestors are you know so that that that's the place we're connecting to the beginning the fire was the first element Buddha talks about fire a lot. He has a fire sermon. Look it up. Look up the fire sermon and read it. So there's a lot about fire in Buddhist practice that they don't talk about, like going to the beginning and to the source and being at the source. And there's a lot about elements in, in, in seasons and all these kinds of things in the Buddhist practice that get kind of left out. We just focus on loving kindness, peace, harmony, wisdom, compassion. And, you know, we like those. But when it's really close to that kind of earthy kind of beginning, sourcey, indigenous, shamanic aspect, we kind of dare away from that a little bit. And I'm writing about why we might do that. I don't know, but we do. So I think that it's important to um, not, not if, if we walk into a door, which now when I walk into something new, I don't insert myself. I try to see and witness, know, feel, touch. And um, I can see right away if I should be there or not, or if I want to be there or not. Even if I go somewhere else, I'm just going to be sent somewhere else. I just feel that, you know. Um, I was led early on to African religion, African practice and spirituality from the beginning. And I, I didn't go. I was like, oh, no, I don't think I can do what they wanted me to do. I actually was African 
religion from um, Dahomeans. And they had told me they had come to get me. I have been doing all their rituals because I like rituals and ceremonies. And then they said, we, we've come to bring you home and we have a husband for you and everything. Everything's laid out and you're to take your throne. And I was like, what the hell is going on? And uh, like 20 years later, I found out about they were all diviners. And um, I have been practicing with them and they had saw something in me I couldn't see. And so um, it's interesting. I didn't get, um, I guess, presented and shaped into the African religion, um, either Ifa or Vudan, but I still, I still could feel it. And so even in the, the Zen practice, I, I feel like I came to the same place I would have come to if I had gone with the Dahomeans. And I was 18 then, 18, 17, 18, 19. So that's how I can see how life just kind of presents itself in various ways. And there's just something very core that we're to learn of ourselves. I think that's why we're in now in our little uh, caves, something very core about our individual selves that we need to know in order to be uh, in, in, and to nurture our interrelationship with each other that is still there whether we want it or not whether we like a person or not, we're still related to them, um, you know, too bad, you know, so, you know, you, we're related to people we don't like, you know, so um, that's my quick kind of brief, maybe not so brief <laughs> response. I don't have answers. I have responses. <laughs> so, thank you. So we have Andrew and then Melanie will be the last. All right. I thank you for the talk. Um, what resonated with me was this thing about trying to uh, manipulate rather than receive. Um, I have I have that tendency um, and it's implanted within my brain where whenever I'm confronted with a situation, I either want to hide from it or I think like, how can I hack this? Um, and I think even my coming to Zen was a version of that. Um, yeah. And maybe this is a manipulative question even, is uh, how, how do I make myself stop that? Okay, so um, again, there's an effort, make myself stop something rather than just seeing yourself. And you see yourself, I do see you see yourself, but you're trying to make an effort now to change because you don't like that. You want, you know, you're not going to, you're going to get rid of it. So that's kind of moving away from the peace I'm talking about. So like we're talking about peace and the chaos. So you're creating some kind of inner chaos for yourself already. It's already there because you've already decided you need to stop it. You need to, and maybe it does need, I'm not saying it doesn't need to be uh, stopped, but it needs to be looked at because when we try to stop something before it's time to be stopped, what we do is some kind of manipulative behavior. So then we, um, I call a, you know, maybe we want to be Buddhist. So we're being Buddhist, you know, whatever that looks like, you know, so you have to look a certain way, walk a certain way, talk a certain way, and move your hands a certain way to be Buddhist, you know, or, um, you know, I've seen myself in the line sometimes when I get agitated at the, you know, when I'm at Zen Center, so it's time to eat and I'm hungry. And people are moving really slow. I said, we're not doing king and get your lunch to get out the way. <laughs> you know, this is not the time for it. 
can, you know, that's what it feels like they're doing, you know, slow bow. And they're being, you know, they're trying to be mindful and Buddhist. it's their way of thinking and feeling what's mindful, right? And so when we get in our heads of what to stop, it starts to create the chaos for ourselves. Or even what we see in the world, this got to stop now. I'm going to go crazy if it doesn't. So I'm going to go out and smash a window. Oh, I just smashed the store window. <laughs> I meant to come down here and march for against anti-blackness. <laughs> you know, you're losing that because when, you, when you're inserting yourself and your ideas in your way, there, the the peace that you could have and the actions that you take gets eliminated by our thoughts of how we think it should be. I had a friend say, I cannot go to the Zen Center. They have too many rules. And I was at a ceremony with her that had a hundred times more rules than Zen Center. I said, well, there's a lot of rules here. And, and that one is because that's how the, the forms are presented as rules. And so they're not really rules, you know. They're, they are actually Zen. They're actually what we do. We're actually doing this ceremony in these rituals. That's what it is. It's not the same thing they do at different centers. They do other rituals or other kinds of things. So <clears throat> I think that I just, you know, right off is just hearing you say that um, not working on yourself and just noting when you are and not not um, jerking a chain hard on yourself, but just allowing it to be and just to continue to sit zazen and to continue to um, um, be aware and, and just keep that going along with, you know, even finding peace in that in that who. I mean, there will always be some part of yourself that, that irritates you. I have a part of myself that irritates me about who I am. But if I am in, in, see it and I'm in peace with it and I move with it, I notice that some of these things fall off on their own. I don't stop them. They just fall off on their own. You know, um, if I'm doing that practice, Zen may not be the practice you should do. You know, then maybe there's something else. I always tell, maybe you should do some other medicines. People come to it, to these practices. They come to meditation. Meditation is not for everyone. Zazen is not for everyone. I don't believe in that. I don't believe meditation is, should be, um, you know, delivered to the masses. I just, I don't. I think there's other ways. The teachings are fine, but they're not bringing the teachings. They're just bringing the silence. So I think that there's an important thing to look at. Are you in the right place? Does it nurture your life? And does it bring peace? Uh, even though there's still this chaos going on because that's life. It's gonna be this and it's gonna be this. Always. And then even in the end, it's even more, I'm dying, I'm dying. If you get the chance to say that, you know, but it's, it's, that's not going away. What's in the world is not going away. It's to be used, it's to be looked at, it's to note and to understand. And when you're doing those kinds of things, I experience peace. I can experience peace. I'm not going away from them. I'm not going away from the fact that uh, there's horror in the world. I can't go away from that. Plus it, it gets presented to me as soon as I walk out the door. I hate you. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> there are people that hate me. Wow. 
I used to get paralyzed and cry and go in my house and lock the door. None anymore. But I didn't stop myself from, you know, crying and paralyzation. I kept practicing until they just being with all of it, all the crazy. Because even if I go somewhere else, it still can be crazy. I could be in a an all people of color situation and they go crazy too. It does it's it's people. It's human beingness. And when you get that, boy, you learn so much about where you are on this planet. Not why, but where. Maybe what, but maybe not why. Why is a theory, it's just gonna be theory, theory after theory after theory. So but just what, well, where are you? Where are you now? Where are you now? Okay, thank you, Andrew. Okay, uh, last one, Melanie. Melanie. Hi. Hi. Um, wow, lots of power and so many things. And uh, I appreciate everybody that's asked questions and, and your responses. Boy, you really roll with it and give a lot. Um, and I appreciate everybody here who I've never seen before and the energy you're bringing, because I think it makes a difference. Um, so uh, this idea of what's real and some ideal, you know, some con inner conflict is, uh, is speaks to me because um, I think it's easy for me uh, to make uh, Zazen or, or Austin Zen Center or anything like that, like another thing I do or don't do, which I can't say I'm doing a lot right now. Mm -hmm. um, and I think this idea that, like, what do you let go of? This idea of transformation and freedom. I mean, that's the, that's the ideal thing that appeals to me. Um, and, but, but the idea that even to let go of what, is it about letting go of any idea of what that is and then seeing what shows up like that? Because maybe I'm not going to be some really impactful person to the world. Maybe I'm just going to have some impact on some people close to me or something like that. Um, yeah. Cause, cause uh, yeah, here I am 66 and I think, God, I'm still growing up. I'm still, I'm a very flawed person yeah. and only people really close to me see how flawed I am. And I don't, I'm not going to tell everybody about myself. Yeah. Anyway, that's all. <laughs> Thank you for that. No, <laughs> that's, that's great. Um, I think that um, the letting go, you know, kind of wish that language didn't exist anymore, but it does. And uh, again, we assert ourselves in that, you know, we have to let go. And, and, and so we're still doing the thing rather than um, being let go. Like when I was talking about over time, you know, there is a moment where you will be let go. You have to trust that, you know, that it will let go of you you know, let it let go of you rather than you trying to let go of it. Again, you're working and you're working. And, you know, when we come into this practice, it's not, it's not that working. It's not working. It's not doing. It's, it's actually just not doing anything and, and, and not being really anybody, right? So you're going in, you wake up, you go to the machine, you brush, you wash your face, you brush your teeth, you, you comb your hair. The next day you wash your face, you brush your teeth, you brush your teeth. You eat you the same thing next day, you, you know, blah, blah, blah. Then you get a little better how you do it, but you still got the same thing, <laughs> you know, that you're doing. 
And that, that really is just life. That really is it. And in that doing of the mundane, you see, you know, life, you see life. And all of us are affecting each other in some large ways, transformatively. You, your life force is, is connecting to mine, even though it's through a screen, there is a connection there. And that's important to remember because if your life force was doing some kind of things, then I might be affected by that, whatever kind of thing you were doing. Um, I was watching a Zoom and the person, the a person had created a beautiful song and she was singing a song about COVID and it was a sad song, but it was beautiful. So somebody on, the, on one of the screens was going, smiling and, you know, just, just gone off, you know, really like smiling, like animated and smiling. And then I could tell they told the, because the song was really sad. It wasn't where she was. And she was just listening to the music, right? She wasn't hearing the words because it really was about dying and, and everything and being dead and beautiful song. And I uh, noticed they told her to stop because she changed. She's like, what? You know, I could see her face change. And then she started just trying to move just a little bit. You know, but we affect each other. She affected the the whole screen because she was swaying so back and forth, and it was just like we couldn't even see the songwriter and the song. We couldn't hear the song, even though she was muted. The person swaying was muted. You couldn't hear her or nothing, but she was affecting the entire screen. So you know, we do affect each other, and this notion of wanting to be somebody—that's what the uh, that was given to us at birth in this country especially that, you know, to, um, you know, uh, now is this person that's, that's famous and then they overdo it. Right. You know, how many times you're, you are, you know, you're just not going to, uh, forget Amanda Gorman, <laughs> you know, if you have, if you don't know that name, I don't know, but you know, the way it's just, her name just keep coming and coming and coming and coming. There's an evoking of, of this person who did this poll at the inaugural, inaugural, uh, inauguration of Joe Biden and, and uh, Kamala Harris, you're not, it's like, okay, not to me, sometimes it just is too far. So it gets people to think, okay, I have to do something sort of like what she did to be seen, because I need to be seen. And to look at what it takes, what is that needing to be seen and what needs to be seen? And what are you hiding? You know, mm-hmm. what are you hiding? Because when you feel you need to be seen, you're hiding. I got that. I was like, oh, God, I'm hiding. Wow. Yeah, I'm hiding. And as soon as I stopped hiding, then I became visible and I was very uncomfortable with it, like I am now. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's like, oh, no. So visible is just a lot of suffering being visible and there's a lot of suffering being unseen, invisible. So, you know, this really uh, precious life you have and treasuring it and cherishing your life yourself and, 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 and it's just going to happen. Everyone's going to treasure you. You don't have to work on it or be something other than who you are. And yes, you're human. You're going to do some things. You're going to say some things that just will rock people's world. They don't want to hear it. And then you just sit with that. You lose friends. I, I have lost friends. Mm. I sit with that, you know, um, from opening my mouth at the wrong time and saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing with mm. people, not not uh, respecting them or something like that without 
you know, it's, but I had to sit and look at, it. I didn't say, Oh, I, re- I got to stop not respecting people. I got to stop the height. I got to stop. Not, I didn't do any of that. I just kept practicing and practicing and practicing. And that's when it revealed to me these things about hiding. And I saw why I did the motivation behind my actions was just amazing. And then I, so now when I do something, I ask myself, even calling my, maybe my family, what's the motivation of you making that call right now? What, what is it you're getting ready to do? Because you're not a telephone person. So something, you're trying to do something. Hmm. You know, just little, little stuff. You know, you start to see, that's what this practice is. When you see yourself, then you have your motivations. And then when we meet, you will be aware of your motivation. Maybe it's it's still there. It doesn't have to go away, but it's understood. So that when whatever the outcome of that interaction is, you're not surprised. You know, so like, I asked some students at Tassajara once I was teaching there, I said, what, why are you here? And they were like, what, why, why are we here? I said, because if you're just here for the bed and the meals, then that's okay, but know that. And then when you're not, don't become Eno or Tonto, you know, head of practice, you don't have a position, you understand, remember you came for the bed and the meal. <laughs> You know, and you and you have to be honest with yourself about that. And you're still getting the bed and the meals. Now what? Now what is your motivation? What is your motivation in life? Why are you here? What are you? What are you here for? You don't have to answer it. Just put the questions out. Those are just rhetorical. Yeah, that seems like the transformative question to me. Yeah, it's rhetorical. It, you don't answer it. Yeah. Yeah, and it's easy not to ask it. It's too easy not to ask that. Mm-hmm. I mean, for me anyway, it's easy to avoid and hide like you talked about. I, yeah, I would look at that too. You know, when you want to be out there, what are you hiding? Yeah, yeah. interesting. Because then when you get out there, you're just going to hide again. <laughs> Tell you that. That's my, that's my experience. Thank you. That's it. Thank you, Melanie. Yeah. And thank you again. It's been a day. <laughs> the day thank you so much for staying with us for so long all right and thank you and have a good day thank you very bye. much bye 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 bye